Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Luke? I'm sure as, as most of us are, I have found myself just in my own, my own time of, uh, of worship and meditation. Um, I have found myself just, in, just desiring to, to be steeped in the beauty of John 1, of, of, of Matthew 1, and, and Matthew's just beautiful tracing of the lineage of Jesus Christ as king, and, uh, and Luke's, the opening of Luke's gospel as well. And that's just where I've been. And I want to begin by reading this morning out of the book of Luke. And I want to start actually in chapter 2 and read a portion of about 20 verses and I'll, I'll try to read with a little bit of gravitas, but you can um, follow along and we'll have it up as well. I'm reading from the ESV, and uh, we're going to use it to kick into our theme today of worshiping around the fourth and the final aspect of, Isaiah's nine, of Isaiah 9's uh, prophecy of Christ, the Messiah, as the Prince of Peace. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child." And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find him lying Excuse me, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Father, we begin by just taking a posture of genuine gratitude and thankfulness for the word of God, the record of redemption, the glory of the incarnation, the glory of your redemptive narrative, Lord God. Although familiar, 
Father, we take a moment to marvel and to wonder in our hearts at the beauty that these words reveal to us. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the glory of the Lord reflected in the flesh. Father, we ask this day that you would steep us, that you would anchor us, that you would place us so firmly in the truth that our hearts would not waver nor wander, but that we, Father, would pursue you with earnestness and diligence to worship and give you glory. And we ask, Lord, that as we pursue truth by your word, that you would glorify yourself in us. Speak to us this day. Continue, Lord, to speak to us by your spirit. Father, we need your spirit. We desire your spirit to lead us and to guide us into truth. We thank you, Lord, this day in your name. Amen. The, the angelic pronouncement of verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That, that angelic pronouncement has long been a staple of the Christmas season from Christian hymns, carols that we would sing to greeting cards to perhaps those Pinterest signs that are printed and put over your fireplace mantles for some of you. That is, it's a familiar and, 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 and well-worn, if you will, pronouncement. The proclamation of peace on earth and goodwill towards men is what the New King James Version states. And, and I, I love it because I, I like how the New King James puts the punctuation, giving emphasis to certain aspects of the statement where he, in the New King James it reads, glory to God in the highest and on, our, and on earth, peace. And it puts a comma. Goodwill towards men. But when we remove the cultural filter and the over-familiarization and consider the context of this passage, particularly verse 14, we see that the praise of the heavenly hosts was not simply scripted to make the pronouncement of Jesus Christ's birth that much more dramatic or a spectacle or a showing, like perhaps like a bugle would be used in the days of old, presenting Jesus the Christ. Sometimes I think we might pursue or, or understand this text in such a way. It wasn't scripted to, to give a sense of show to the pronouncement of the angels. Rather, brothers and sisters, as I read it this week, I, I was just taken aback by the, the, the wonder and the awe that this was the natural reaction to the revelation of God's inauguration of redemption. This was heaven's response to the revelation of redemption on the earth. Think about this just for a moment. The throng of heavenly beings responding in that very moment to the angel of the Lord's decree that the Savior, Christ Jesus, the promised Messiah, had finally come. I've got goosebumps. Like, it's amazing when we think about how, as First Peter would say, that which the prophets had longed to understand had searched for the timing of the revelation of grace. And he also says in 1 Peter 1, 
that the angels longed to look into that timing. And suddenly, here it is. And the angel of the Lord appears and makes the pronouncement. And what does heaven do? It erupts in praise and in worship that finally, finally, the Messiah had come. Isn't that fantastic? yard house. They have those yards of beer. You can set it on the floor with a straw. (laughs) And what was it? What was it that they had seen? What was it that the angelic hosts were responding to? And this takes us into our theme. It was that peace had come. What is the pronouncement? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And I'm going to dig into that statement a little bit more this morning in a roundabout way. As I said earlier, this Advent season, we have been worshiping and meditating around the truth of Isaiah chapter 9, particularly verse 6, in the fourfold revealed nature of the Messiah, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And today, I want us just to, to, if you will, please, brothers and sisters, it requires sometimes for us to put aside overfamiliarity with texts, with even with understanding of certain things. And I'm not saying get rid of what you understand. What I'm just saying is may we not look through the lens of being so familiar, of like, oh yeah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I'm asking to put on your lenses of faith this morning. Put on you just your, your, your lens of wonder and awe that Jesus Christ has come to humanity once again to dwell with us, that God has made a way for him to dwell with mankind. And the beauty and the wonder that peace is to us. And I want to just steep us in that today. And and I'll, I'll look at Isaiah 9, perhaps in a little bit, although not totally extensively, but we'll use the theme. Um, but just as a quick aside, I wonder if any of you have ever asked yourselves, you know, Luke, Luke is the only one to include the account of the shepherds in his gospel. Have you ever wondered why did Luke use, or why was it included? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to record the account of the shepherds? When I was younger, I think I often struggled with what seemingly were inconsistencies between the four Gospels. If you read them, you go like, why is this here and why isn't it here? Or why does this say this? And as I've, as I've grown and as I've matured in my understanding and my biblical theology has grown and matured as well, I realized and have understood that each gospel is meant to reveal Jesus in a particular and a significant way. That is why the Holy Spirit inspired each one of them to record what they did of the life of Christ in such a way. And so if you were to take a moment or or just do a study to try to identify the major themes of each gospel, it's widely agreed more or less on, on four individual themes of each individual gospel. Matthew reveals the theme of Christ Jesus as the king and speaks extensively on the kingdom of God, the Messiah as king, the longing of Israel for a king. Mark, broadly speaking, speaks of Jesus through the lens of Christ as the servant, particularly the suffering servant. John's theme is Jesus as the life, capital L, the life and the eternal life which comes to us through him. 
And Luke's revelation of Jesus is much through the lens of his salvific purpose for all of humanity, but not just the Jews, for everyone. Luke takes this stance of the revelation of the Messiah to all of the world, that all would find salvation through the Christ. And it's here in Luke's message to all mankind that we have this loud initial pronouncement of what? Peace on earth to all mankind. Peace finally come to a man. And I thought this was interesting. So why the shepherds? To a group of men whose life was given to caring for and to tending for sheep. What are shepherds but those who are called to lead their flock in the way that they should go? Supplying for them sustenance to graze upon and bringing them into what? Peace-filled places, into pastures of security. And it's interesting, just 10, 15 verses prior to what I read today in Luke chapter 2 is Zechariah's prophecy where he speaks of the peace that Jesus would bring whom John the Baptist would point the way towards. And so we have this theme of peace that presents itself initially in Luke's gospel narrative that is so wonderful and so beautiful. And we know the Old Testament is rife with language, prophecies, foreshadowing of the promised peace that would come to Israel. It's a theme that's well presented throughout the history of mankind. And in fact, as I wrote in this week's Advent devotional, one might say that it was because of peace or a lack thereof that Christ came to earth. But to better understand that, or to understand that fully, I think that we must first better understand what peace is. What is true peace? And as I said, the Old Testament speaks of it extensively. It's a theme that we see that is significant to God's people and to the relationship of God with his people and man one to another. So commonly when speaking of peace, we most likely think of peace being what? The absence of conflict or the absence of turmoil in our lives or in the world which surrounds us. That's where we go, peace in the Middle East, right? Isn't that some saying from the 90s? Peace, the absence of conflict. However, the biblical concept of peace is significantly more captivating, brothers and sisters, and it is, it's vividly holistic, you know what I mean by that? It's, it touches all of the life of creation, of humans, and of God's creation. It's much more than just singular, singular in focus in terms of the absence of strife. It's, it's robust. It's holistic. Conflict does not simply cease where God intervenes, but rather his peace, listen, true peace establishes order, it brings right standing between God, with, between himself and mankind, and it ushers in with it a blessing. Peace brings with it a blessing for those whom it has come to and come upon. The blessing of tranquility, the blessing of harmony, of unity, and of rest, all of those are found within God's true biblical definition of what peace is. Tranquility, harmony, unity, rest. It's the blessing of peace. 
God does not simply restore mankind to equilibrium. In other words, if you created a spectrum and this is zero and this is negative 10, God restores and blesses his peace that he has brought. And as we have pointed out during this series already, Isaiah's prophecy is not that Christ would simply bring peace, but that he is peace. And his name shall be called, is the words of Isaiah. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Peace is a title by which the Christ is known. And as such, all of his works and all of his words go forth and establish peace. In other words, all of what God does and puts in place in part results in peace. This understanding was intimately known by the people of Israel and and in the Hebrew language, they gave one word for it. And I think we probably all know what that is. It's the word shalom. Everything that I just said in the Hebrew and in, 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 in the Old Testament understanding of God's people was wrapped up in this one word, shalom. One writer would say it like this. The biblical concept of peace is one in which God's authority and his power over his created order are seen to dominate his relations with his world including both the material and the human spheres. In the Old Testament, peace results from a person subjecting himself or herself appropriately to God or to God's emissary. Think about this for a moment. In the Old Testament, peace was experienced through subjection of ourselves unto God's will unto the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience. And in the New Testament, which extends and modifies the Old Testament imagery, the writer goes on to say, the language of treaties between warring parties is used to speak of the way in which God relates to humans. He demands that strife be overcome through the death of Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, by this definition, peace is, is, is ruptured as a result of man's disobedience and wanton lack of submission by the definition that I just read. The peace that God created with was ruptured through mankind's disobedience. Through sin, of course, we know is the disobedience of mankind. The relationship between two parties, man and God, is fractured, thereby creating hostility between the two. Are you following me? This is why in the Hebrew word shalom, what is is highlighted is the right standing with God. It's not just the absence of conflict but it's coming into right standing. And so when they would say to pursue peace, as Jeremiah would say in your city, it's not just to pursue good works. It's to pursue the rule and reign of God and that man would be reconciled unto God, thereby experiencing tranquility and rest and harmony with God as he has provided through Christ Jesus. This is what true peace is, brothers and sisters. 
And like so many aspects of God's redemptive plan, peace is pictured as bookends within God's creation or within God's narrative of redemption. We see in the garden where God's dominion is exercised with no lack. Coming back to what I said a moment ago, and as I read that definition, that peace results from a person subjecting himself or herself appropriately to God. We see in God's creation that God's dominion is exercised with no lack whatsoever. There's harmony within God's creation, right? Between man and creation, between man with man, and between man with God. But we also see a restored peace within the new creation, whereby in John's vision at the end of Revelation includes with it God's ultimate and eternal dwelling once again being among his creation. Peace finally fully realized. You're absolutely right. Hallelujah. Do you guys marvel at this? I hope you do. Allow the Lord to let that so sink into your hearts and minds Brothers and sisters, it will cause you to worship when you consider the totality of what Christ Jesus has done to draw you near to him. So that one day within eternity, we together will live amongst God once again, perfectly in his presence. But to achieve this, to achieve this future reality, it would require an offering to restore the fracture. This too was something that Israel was keenly familiar with. Throughout the Old Testament, there are several references to God requiring a peace offering. And while it isn't explicitly stated when it's to be given, it's what is explicit is what is required within the peace offering. It's given, it's required by God in order to establish peace with God and right standing with him once again. There's two essential elements that were necessary in the peace offering. It was the sacrifice of an animal, the body being given, and the pouring out of the animal's blood. Those are the two essential elements that were required by God's people in the Old Testament to experience and have peace restored with them, a body and the blood. Sacrificed unto him. And I think while often the sacrifices of the Old Testament, we, we read them and they strike the, the modern believer maybe as a little bit gory and perhaps even grotesque at times or, or brutal, apart from the overall foreshadowing of God's sacrifice that, that we understand being pictured within that, I think as it pertains to peace, brothers and sisters, there is something that's insightful and profoundly significant to the peace offering requiring body and blood. And it is this, church, peace is costly. Peace is costly. In the Old Testament, Peace came as the result of a process that demanded a very high cost. And that cost was a life. That was how the people of God were able to draw near to him, to be reconciled to him, was through a sacrifice. And so the obvious conclusion, which I'm going to state nonetheless, is that Jesus Christ... Through him, 
Peace was enfleshed, brothers and sisters. Peace was enfleshed in the Christ. And a man, and though the pouring out of his and through the pouring out of his blood, peace was restored. The fracture was repaired. And once again, harmony could be experienced. And I just want to say this, brothers and sisters, as New Testament and New Covenant believers, we understand, we must have an understanding, and we must live in the reality of the new creation, New Testament, New Covenant truth, which is that the kingdom of God, which includes the peace of God through Christ Jesus, has come and can be experienced now, and that now experience points us to, and what a beautiful Advental message, it points us to the future reality of the peace that will be experienced perfectly one day. And so this is important for us, not to just necessarily either look at the now, at the, at the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Can't remember. Yeah, well, yeah. What, what is that though? At the, like, at the cost of the future? It doesn't matter. We look at the now and we forget about the future or vice versa. We just look towards the future and forget about the now reality. Could have said that so much better if I would have articulated this sentence in my mind ahead of time. Hey, this is hard sometimes, okay? Public speaking can be difficult. I took group speech in college. Because I was deathly afraid of public speaking. I'm not kidding you. I did. I took group speech in college. This is the grace of God on my life today that I stand before you and I preach the word of God. But listen, what my point was just to say that we mustn't lose sight of both tense realities of the present and the future reality. The present is experienced in part, and we talked about this in terms of, of the charismata and the Holy Spirit's work within the life of the believer in the church, that it is a down payment. It's a deposit. And more importantly, brothers and sisters, it's a guarantee. May our hearts be enriched and enlivened in faith at the guarantee of the peace that will be ours fully. Again, that God would dwell with us perfectly and we would find such pleasure and delight. Even though we cannot fully comprehend what that will be like. We hold to it. We preach it now. We profess it now. And what we say is to those outside of Christ that he has come, that the peace of God has come and can be experienced now for your life. You can experience the reconciliation that God has made on your behalf of right standing and how that affects your spirit and your, your soul, your inner being to be reconciled to God. So many people live in the pain of unreconciliation without understanding what it is that is truly out of whack in their own life. It's the result of not understanding the peace that has come, the shalom of God that has come to the earth through the person of Christ Jesus. Glory to God in the highest peace on earth. And goodwill, again, as the New King James says, that goodwill is such a beautiful statement because it, it, what it means in the New King James Version is it's, it has a, it's like a, a bit of a double entendre, if you will, in that it is God's pleasure with man, but also man's pleasure in salvation. Goodwill towards men. 
It's the pleasure of both parties, one unto another, the product of reconciliation. This is beautiful truth, you guys. I hope I'm doing it justice this morning. Would you please turn to Isaiah chapter 53? Isaiah 53. I'm kind of dancing around Isaiah 9, but that's okay. Because as I said, there's so many beautiful references of the promised peace, of the coming peace, of the peace that is ours, the peace to be experienced and lived in. Coming back just to this truth, as I said a moment ago, that peace is costly. Isaiah 53, you know this text well. Beginning in verse three, the peace that is costly, brothers and sisters, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, the costly price of peace. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Church, peace is costly. But what? Jesus gladly took it upon himself to reconcile man to God. Earlier, chapters earlier in Isaiah 26, Isaiah would say this, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. And then he makes the statement, for you have indeed done for us all our works. What a beautiful statement. Church, God has done every single step that is needed, he has enacted to bring peace unto you, to reconcile yourself to him. God has done it all. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. The word for this restoration of peace that we see over and over again in Paul's letters is the word reconciliation. To be reconciled is to experience the restoration of relationship with another party. That's what reconciliation means. To experience the restoration of relationship with another party. As I said, God created and peace reigned within his dominion. Sin fractured the peace. Through Christ Jesus, God made a way once again to restore peace. And now, brothers and sisters, just as Hebrews is rife with the language of Jesus being better than all that came before, he now stands in perpetuity as the eternal sacrifice, as the eternal mediator of peace on our behalf before God. In other words, the peace that God brings is forever. It's everlasting. It can't be thwarted. It will never cease. 
It never comes to an end. His peace remains, church. It continues. It rules. We say, how often do we say that? The rule and the reign of God. What does that speak of? It speaks of dominion and it speaks of submission. Church, God is in control of all things and we humbly and obediently submit to him and receive and accept all that he says is true for us. That's what we do. We do nothing else, which is why the, the writers in, throughout, the, throughout scripture speak of the rest of God's people, the R-E-S-T, the rest of God's people. We enter into the rest, strive to remain in the rest. Because we did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to receive it. We did nothing to enact it. But God, being rich in mercy, made peace with us when we could not make it for ourselves. Would you look at Colossians chapter one? I'm going to end quickly and we're going to come to the Lord's table. Speaking of this reconciliation, the cost, the crushed for our iniquities, the peace that we now have through Christ Jesus' sacrifice. Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 19, this is another well-known, often quoted portion of text, but it's beautiful And speaking of the reconciliation, I love the language that Paul uses, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Doggone. If only I could speak with such eloquence. In him, in Christ, the fullness of God not only dwelt, but was pleased to dwell. Why? Because God saw the outcome of Christ Jesus' life on our behalf, church. And it brought God great joy in the sense that we would become the righteousness of God through the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind. In other words, you were far off and you were opposed. Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If we don't worship at that statement and that truth, how calloused our hearts are. What more do we have to worship at? Through Christ Jesus, the reconciliation that he initiated on our behalf brings us into right standing with God. Void of enmity. Enmity. What's more, as I I said earlier, he not only brings us back to equilibrium, but he takes us beyond into blessing. That blessing which we receive and which we experience here and now in this present life. It is peace. Peace is God's 
people knew it, the shalom peace, the rest, the contentment, and, and within the aim of God's good and gracious pleasure is where we stand. And what's more, in Ephesians 2, Paul says this, and speaking of the effects of reconciliation, that Christ himself is our peace, Paul says, Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one, and I love the language, brothers and sisters, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile both us to God in one body through the cross, thereby, and here the language is again, killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The context of Paul is, is the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. So now what Paul is saying is he's bringing in another aspect of the reconciliation of God. And that is not only that man is reconciled unto God, but man is reconciled one unto another. Again, how God originally created this world to be. We see a picture of it now to be experienced. Brothers and sisters, this is what also we preach of God's reconciliation. In the New Testament, it was between the Jews and the non-Jews. Those who were holy and right and in ritual the promise, if you will, the sons and daughters of Abraham and those who were outside of the covenant, the dirty, the despised, the unapproachable, the far off. But what Paul is saying is that through Christ Jesus, both are reconciled now to the Lord. And I love again the language that he uses. And this kind of goes with what Kevin was talking about last week where he says, if you want peace, prepare for war. God he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that existed man from man that was a result of the fracture of sin that we experience. And he put in its place peace, harmony, unity, pleasure, right standing to be experienced man with man. What could possibly be better than all of this? Church, this is all a deposit of what will one day be as well. The joy of this truth, the fact that we can experience it now, how significant that is, but yet it's just a down payment of the joy and the beauty of what we will one day experience. But until that time, we must remind ourselves, we must be diligent to live and to preach and to speak and present this aspect of God's kingdom which we're called not only to live within and to live out, but to emulate and to bring others and call others into. To call others, to remind them and to tell them that dividing wall of hostility has been broken between us. That God, through Christ Jesus, through his sacrifice, killed the hostility, extinguished the enmity is another way of saying that, of what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Brothers and sisters, may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. See, this is the true worship of Advent, church. 
being filled with peace so that our hope would abound in our waiting and in our looking and in our longing for his return. And I just want to say one last thing as we prepare to come to the Lord's table that I, I found really, really fascinating and encouraging just in terms of, of the everlasting and, and um, the very intentional nature of Christ being the Prince of Peace. I thought it was interesting as I was pondering Isaiah's words in 9.6 that he isn't called the King of Peace. Doesn't that seem a little bit more stately, a little bit more like all-encompassing. He's called the Prince of Peace. And as I looked into it, Isaiah uses the word prince very intentionally. And it isn't in the royalty sense. It's actually very specific. It's used in a militaristic sense. It actually is another word for captain or general. He is the general of peace. Again, brothers and sisters, this peace that was given to us was secured, in a sense, violently. It was a, a war and a battle that was waged and won by Christ Jesus. And as I said a moment ago, the writer of Hebrews speaks so much that it is now eternal and everlasting. And he, he, he now lives as our captain of peace, forever leading us into peace if that makes sense, if we could say it that way. What a beautiful picture that is, isn't it? it? Again, it just drives home the point that it is so much more than just a byproduct of what he does, as significant and important as that is. It is who he is, church. And to understand that what he does comes from who he is is a very important truth that we must always remember. He is the general, the captain, who forever leads us into peace. May we follow him into that place. Amen? Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, great pleasure of man with salvation and great pleasure of God with man. Amen?